You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're going to talk about limitless learning and learning math that really matters with Dr. Joe Bowler. Dr. Bowler is a professor of mathematics education at Stanford University and the author of 14 books. Her newest book is called Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers, and it shares the benefits of a growth mindset, collaboration, and learning from mistakes with a general audience. Based on lessons from research in the U.S. and the U.K., Dr. Bowler formed ucubed.org. It gives teachers, parents, and students the resources they need to excite students about mathematics. They are now used in about half of American schools. Recently, Dr. Bowler has joined the University of Chicago economist Stephen Levitt in a campaign to add more data science to high school curriculum. Let's listen in as she talks with Tom. All right, Dr. Joe Bowler, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcasts. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Where'd you grow up, Joe? I grew up in the center of England, uh, near a town called Birmingham, which is this, known as the second capital of the country. Uh, that's why I'm an ardent West Bromwich Albion supporter, and I watch their games every week still. Um, and yeah, so I'm Did you grow up, uh, very much... were you a math geek in, in secondary school? Well, I had a lot of different experiences with maths, which I think uh, led to my wanting to be a professor and research it. And so I had some really bad maths experiences and I had some really great maths experiences. Um, I can still remember vividly the time uh, one of my teachers, I was probably about 16, said, you know, ask if you have any questions. And at some point I raised my hand and I said, oh, I, I don't really understand this. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you don't understand that? So that was the last time I ever asked a question. Yeah, so, so much for a growth mindset, right? Yeah, never again did I ask him a question. So anyway, um, experiences like that. Um, I also had a great maths teacher when I was about 17, and she was the one who kept me in maths. Yeah, it can be as simple as one teacher that it can. really gives you a picture of what it can be, right? Absolutely. And one teacher that can end it for you also. I know so many yeah, people right? have had that experience. Yeah. Right. So after um, Liverpool, how did you come to teach uh, secondary maths in London? Well, I moved from Liverpool to London University to take a teaching credential um, so I lived in London for that credential. I did my student teaching in London, and then I stayed in London to start my teaching career. What did you teach, and was that a generally good experience? Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. So the school I taught in, it was in Camden Town. People who visit London may know Camden. And there were about 200 different languages spoken at the school um, many, many different cultural backgrounds from students, as you might expect in the middle of London. And I taught maths and it's an 11 to 18 school and I taught across that age range. But when I arrived at the school, I remember clearly my very first lesson at the school, the kids were in tracks and I had the bottom track and the students had just been as as is typical, right? We put the newest, newest teacher in the most challenging track. Yep. <laughs> and the students had just been put into tracks and they were about 14. And I remember so clearly I looked at them on that very first day. And the very first question I had was, 
why should we bother? And I really sympathized because they were on a path to low achievement. That was the way it was set out for them. So that year, my first year in the school, I worked with the rest of the department and shared with them the evidence about DD tracking and how bad tracking was for students. And so the following year, we had detract maths and uh, we got rid of the tracking. And from that point onwards, the students were all heterogeneously grouped. That is, seems like a big win for a first year faculty. Yeah, well, I, I think I was fortunate to have receptive other teachers in a school that's really committed to equity and diversity. I think maths was one of the only subjects that had students in track. So I don't think anybody could go in and shift a maths department in the way I did, but um, I was fortunate in having a maths department that really listened and they were on board. You did your PhD at King's College and won an award for your dissertation. What, what, did, uh, what did you study? So for my PhD, it was at the time when there was a lot of argument about maths approaches. And a lot of people were saying this stand and lecture approach isn't very good. We should engage kids more actively. But there was really no research at that time. So I thought, well, why didn't I look into those two different approaches to teaching? And at the time in England, there were six schools who decided they were going to teach through a project-based approach. And so I got in touch with a couple of them and went and visited them. And um, one of the schools agreed that I follow students over three years at the school and really study what happened. So that was my PhD. I followed two sets of students, one in a very typical traditional, traditionally taught school and the other in this project-based school. And I observed the students for hundreds of hours. I also gave them various different assessments. I interviewed them. I interviewed teachers. So it's a very in-depth case study of what was happening in these two schools. What did you uh, learn from that? Well, it was interesting because in the project-based school, it was a very open, um, non-disciplinarian school. And the students were given lots of responsibility. They were told, you know, this is your project. You work on it in any way you want. There was a lot of kids who were off task. Well, they seemed off task. They were kind of joking and laughing and seemed pretty chaotic. And I remember in the early stages thinking, oh, am I going to find out about this maths approach when it's so kind of chaotic? But anyway, um, over time, I, what I saw was these students doing really, really well. And they ended up at the end of the three years, they even scored at significantly high levels on the national exam, which was nothing like what they were doing in the classroom. And I also, at one point, I thought, why don't I, I ask the students how much time they're really focused in their lessons? And I asked both sets of students the same question. And what was really interesting to me was the average came back from the two schools and it was identical. And this made me realize these kids are sitting in this traditional school in silence, working through worksheets for an hour, but who knows what they're really thinking and doing. And they were very honest. They said, we can't just sit and do that. And we're, we're not really working for at least 20 minutes of each lesson. Important early observations. Yeah. And the students at the project-based school, they were did significantly better on state tests, but they did really well on more applied assessments, much better than the other kids. And I was even able to go back 
about six years later and find the, both sets of students as adults and find out how the maths approach had impacted them long term. So, uh, Joe, this may be an obvious question, but you, you joined the Stanford faculty about 20 years ago. Um, maybe obvious, but why Stanford? What was your interest in maths education at Stanford? I was at King's College at the time. I was just finishing my PhD. I loved King's College and I love my work and my colleagues. And I was presenting the results of my PhD actually in, in Athens, in Greece. And there were two faculty there from Stanford, the dean of the education school and a chair of the search committee they had for a new person in maths ed. And they both came up to me and said, oh, you must apply to this position at Stanford. And I said, uh, no, it's okay. I'm very happy to do what I'm doing. Thank you. And I, I returned to England, uh, went back to my work. They, they started writing to me and emailing me, emailing me. They eventually sent me picture books of California with these beautiful <laughs> photographs and said, just come and visit. So I said, okay, I guess I could do that. There's no harm in going to visit and interview. And I did that. And of course, they had me hooked from that point. And I ended up saying yes. And Well, it is a spectacular campus and the weather's lovely every day. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> In 2000, you were awarded uh, an NSF grant, a presidential early career award. And you had a chance to do another long study about um, teaching maths. It, it sounds like... Um, somewhat similar to your, your dissertation work. Is that true? Maybe tell us about that and what you learned. Yeah, that is true, yeah. People are criticized in educational research for not really following up on studies and just doing lots of different ones. And I thought, well, it's definitely worthwhile looking at this in a wholly different context in American schools, and let's see what we find out here. So I, again, found different schools that taught sort of the traditional way and schools that didn't schools that taught kids to be more actively involved in maths. And again, I followed students this time for four years uh, through high school with a team of doctoral students, so bigger study. And the results were pretty similar to those in England. The kids who learn more actively achieved at higher levels. They liked maths more. They stayed in, in they had plans to stay in maths longer. They really developed a very different relationship with mathematics that I see now as a very important relationship for anybody to have, including adults in the workplace. You captured some of those findings in what was probably the first uh, math MOOC in 2013 called How to Learn Math. Um, and you had tens of thousands of people sign up for that. What, what, what would you say were the headline arguments of that course? Well, it was an interesting time. I'd come back to Stanford. I actually left Stanford, um, went back to England for a few years and came back to Stanford. And I'd, it was around the time I'd come back to Stanford. And as well as all of the research in education, I'd read Carol Dweck's book about mindset and met with Carol Dweck and, uh, you know, explored the ideas a bit further and realized it was just really important information for maths teachers. And it was around the time when MOOCs were just beginning. It was the rev revolution in online classes. And I'd been helping the people at Udacity a little bit, and they got me really interested in MOOCs. So I thought, well, I'll just share this 
new information for maths teachers. Who knows if anyone will take it? It was kind of an experiment on my part. And we put out the online class that summer with no advertising other than Stanford sending it out in emails. And 30,000 maths teachers took it that first summer. It was really amazing. And they were all interacting with each other because that was the nice thing. The online classes I teach connect people in the classes with each other. And that was the start of something really big and really the start of YouCubed because when the course was finished, a lot of teachers said, can we have more? Uh, we didn't want the course to finish. Uh, can, we, can you keep giving us more information? So that was when we decided to start our website. Uh, it's YouCubed.org. How would you describe mm -hmm. the mission of YouCubed? The mission of U cubed, and it's Y O U cubed, take like U to more dimensions. Um, the mission of U cubed is to share research evidence with teachers and parents and students, but to do so in a really accessible way. So it's not a site with lots of research papers. We take the evidence and we translate that evidence into lessons for kids and videos and all sorts of different things. Our lessons um, in our what we call our week of inspirational maths, which is a whole series of free K-12 lessons with videos. Um, those lessons are used in about half of schools across the U.S. now. So uh, we're very happy with how excited teachers are to actually teach differently. Is there more more uptake at, at the elementary level than secondary? Um, actually, the middle school teachers are fantastic, uh, very excited, a lot of uptake in middle school. So I would say K-8 is uh, very, very strong. Um, and then we have high school teachers who absolutely love the materials and use them. But there's less high school uh, traction. I think high school teachers are a little bit more fixed in the approach that they've always loved themselves. Well, you've written uh, a number of books, I think more than a dozen at this point. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Uh, your your newest lessons learned in a, a great new book called Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers. So first of all, I, I love the title. And um, maybe give us the, the purpose of uh, another book on math. What... What do you think you were able to do in this book that, that your prior books didn't cover? Well, I had a book that actually became very successful called Mathematical Mindsets that was sharing the ideas for maths teachers. And the overwhelming um, the overwhelming feedback I had from teachers reading that book was you must get this out to other people, to parents and to teachers of other subjects. Everybody needs to know this evidence about how we learn. So Limitless Mind was really my attempt to get the ideas up much more broadly. So although I use a lot of maths examples because I can't help myself, um, it's really intended for all teachers and all teachers of all subjects and administrators and lots of different people. And in fact, um, the people who've been most moved by the book so far, who've emailed me and said, you know, this is incredible. I, I wish I'd known this earlier in my life, have been um, not teachers at all, but adults who work in different organizations. And um, so 
Yeah, that was, I've been really wanting to have a lot of different people understand. And I also heard with my Mathematical Mindset book, administrators would say to me, you know, we don't want to read a book with maths in the title. Um, So it was, you know, an attempt to get the ideas out to a really broad public. And in the book, I draw from lots of teachers who've made changes and they're really inspirational stories. In preparation for the book, my team and I interviewed about 62 different people who have already started making the changes that I talk about in the book. And the stories they tell about what happened to themselves in some cases and in others to students um, are really inspirational. It was very enjoyable for me to be able to write those stories down for people. Well, we, our team loved the fact that um, that growth mindset is so central to the book. And I think you do a nice job of, of making clear that growth mindset is really important to success in math, but also in life, that em- embracing the struggle, mm-hmm, exactly, learning how to learn uh, is, is key not only to math, but uh, to life. Yeah. And the mindset crew have some really interesting data that shows that what you believe about your own health will change how physically fit you are. So um, it's really extensive. They also have data that I put in the book that shows that when students went through a mindset intervention, they became less aggressive. And they'd actually been harboring these ideas about other people, like there are bad people and good people and people don't change. So when they learned that actually anybody can change at any time, it caused them to view other people differently and think, oh, maybe that person could be different. And so mindset really is very important for lots of things about our lives. Yes, for learning, definitely, but also for our own thinking just about how we move around the world and how we view other people. You do a nice job of... um of uh, discussing the importance of struggle and mistakes. Maybe you can summarize your findings there. So the neuroscience on this is very interesting because it shows that the very best times for our brains are when we're struggling and making mistakes. That's when there is the most brain activity. And in fact, it's a much better for your brain to struggle and make mistakes than it is to get work correct. So um, this is not something that's very well known in education in the US. And I think teachers are generally trained to have their students get most of the work correct. And if they do struggle, teachers are likely to jump in and save students and break the work down and make it easier so students can complete it. But that isn't the best brain workout. Um, I also know that many students in our education system are afraid of making mistakes and think that if they make a mistake, it means they haven't got the right kind of brain. So in our teaching, I've been teaching um, summer in the summers, I've been teaching middle school students for a few years, and we share with them, we want you to make mistakes, we want you to struggle. And I say, I'm giving you this really difficult work because I want it to be a struggle for you. And sometimes they look at me and say, oh, you know, this is so hard. And I say to them, that feeling, that feeling of it being so hard, that is your brain working out. That's why it feels like that. And what I find is it's very liberating for students and they start to persist longer on problems and not give up so easily. 
No, I, I really appreciate that, Joe. And we're, and we're going to talk about that in a, in a minute when we dive into data science. But one of the big headlines for me around secondary schools is that we give kids small, compartmentalized, bite-sized problems with right and wrong answers, and they're going into a world that's full of novelty and complexity. And so I think just adding complexity to the tasks, both in, in duration and type, uh, is so, so important. So I really appreciate this point. Yeah, and, and of course, they are the most interesting tasks. Nobody's really interested by those short textbook questions where you just feel like you're performing and answering questions you haven't asked yourself. Um, so yeah, those are the best tasks in so many ways. Joe, you talk about engaging with a lens of multiplicity. What, what does that mean? Well, this also comes from neuroscience, where we now know that the best, most powerful brains are those that are interconnected. We have these lots of different pathways in the brain. And when we work on a maths problem, this is true for other subjects too, there are five different pathways involved. And two of them are visual pathways. Thinking visually is really important. But what's also important is to have these pathways communicate with each other. So when we work in a dry way, repeating the same kind of uh, approach in any content area, um, it only stimulates part of the brain. So in maths, we are very guilty of having kids work on numbers all the time. But in English, uh, probably students are working with words all the time. And in either case, engaging students in different ways is what creates these brain connections. And in maths, for example, you can learn maths through numbers, but you can also learn it through visuals or through writing and through movement and building. And so there are many different ways of learning mathematical ideas. And when students engage in different ways, that causes the brain to start talking to, you know, these pathways start communicating with each other. Related to that, you talk about uh, creative, flexible thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love... Um, a book I've read recently actually also talks about the same thing. It's called Elastic. And I like the way he puts it in, in the book. It's written by a physicist. And he talks about how really there's two very different forms of knowledge. And one form of knowledge is this sort of rational, algorithmic, uh, formulaic knowledge, which is highly valued in our school system. And it's important. But what he, talk, he talks about it being a low-level god. And the Zeus of human thinking is this sort of creative, flexible thinking. And I think I would add to that, that the algorithmic kind of rational thinking that we value, particularly in maths classrooms, can be performed by a computer better than any human being on the planet. But that creative, flexible thinking, they're pretty much at ground zero with getting computers to engage in that kind of thinking. And the human brain is ideally suited to that kind of thinking. So it's not as though, it's not that we need to just replace one with the other, but the balance, we're really out of balance. And there's way too, too much of this teaching kids to think in ways that a computer can do better and not inviting them to think in ways that they really need to be thinking. One common thread uh, for, for the last 20 years of your work, it strikes me as collaboration. Uh, the idea that engaging not just individual students, but engaging project teams and groups of 
students, you, you, you seem to have a vision of a math learning that is uh, quite collaborative. Yeah, and, yeah. Is that fair? I, yes, definitely. I definitely find that the best learning for students is work that they do together um, and when students work collaboratively. So when you connect with somebody else's idea, that requires a higher level of understanding as well as developing one. And we want students in all subjects to be connecting with each other's ideas. I taught um, a class of undergrads this past summer at Stanford. So we had 100 incoming undergrads. They all came to me for a class in calculus. And I taught them, of course, to work together in groups and to work on calculus together in engaging projects. And um, what was so interesting is so many of the students didn't know how to work with someone else and talked about how they hated working with other people in maths. And so we really had work to do over the summer. And one of the things that shifted hugely for the students, and they all talked about it at the end of the course, was I learned to work with other people, and it was really a fantastic experience. So um, I just thought it was interesting that here we have these super high-achieving students who have never learned that in school. Right, certainly not in math. I'm afraid that most... Right. Math instruction in America is is still quite individual. The, mm-hmm, the tasks mm-hmm. are individual. The assessments are individual. Right. Yet the workplace, nobody's going to sit there working individually on a maths problem. And those kids, I mean, we I have parents come to me and say, oh, my student can work out the problem in their head. Why should they talk to somebody else about it? Why should they explain it? Well, if you talk to employers out there in the workplace, they're not interested in people who can do maths in their head. They want people who can communicate with other people mathematically. All right, Joe, on to the punchline. Um, the real reason I called was um, this recent op-ed that you wrote with uh, economist Stephen Levitt. I just mm. stood up and cheered when I when I, <laughs> I read this op-ed, yes. and then you did a terrific um, Freakonomics podcast with Steve. The op-ed was called Modern High School Math Should Be About Data Science, Not Algebra 2. Thank mm-hmm. It's very exciting. Um, what's the backstory? Yeah, so this was very interesting for me. I got a call out of the blue from Steve Levitt, not an educator, not a mathematician, so not my normal kind of person. And he said, you know, we, would you join us in trying to change high school maths? And I was, oh, yes, definitely. I'm all in on that. Um, but so this is something really interesting. It was the 1800s when the sequence we teach in high schools was created of kids doing a year of algebra and a year of geometry and another year of algebra, the 1800s, and it hasn't changed since then. Obviously, the world has changed quite dramatically since then. And so the argument is the most important mathematics students need to leave school with right now is being able to work with, analyze, and handle data. We're at this amazing point in time. I love the statistic that um, 90% of the world's data right now uh, was created in the last two years. So uh, we know this is where the world has changed and all the companies have hundreds of data scientists now. I was talking to somebody at Airbnb at the weekend and they have a team of 300 data scientists and that's not atypical. So, and then of course, it's not just about work as a data science, but being able to understand things like elections and finances. There's so much that's about data. 
And the rest of the world has been teaching data for a long time. When I was teaching maths myself in London in the 90s, data uh, methods were about a quarter of the curriculum I was teaching. But here in the US, it's been algebra geometry for decades. So um, we are making the argument that let's stop teaching this. So we know that the algebra geometry sequence has been designed as a, as a sort of basis for calculus. But we also know that most, the majority of students in the US end their maths courses after algebra two. Not surprisingly, because Algebra 2 is a horrible course. And so that raises the question, why are we putting kids through this maths as a basis for calculus if they're not going to calculus? And interestingly, LA Unified uh, got a grant a few years ago and developed a high school course in data science. And they offered it as an alternative to Algebra 2. It was agreed by the University of California system that they would credit that as an equivalent of Algebra 2. And they've had already thousands of students go through that course. So I think it's very exciting. And I probably what I'm most excited about is this. Um, I've been working, as have many others, to try and change high school maths for decades, and nothing has shifted it. But this, this movement with so many important people involved really gives me hope that we may actually change what kids are doing in these high school maths classrooms. And I said to Steve Levitt and his crew, you know, if we're going to change high school maths, we really need to get mathematicians on board because they're very important in making those decisions. So in February at, at Stanford, I, I offered to host a meeting and I invited my favorite mathematicians, the more open-minded ones. So we're having this amazing meeting. And so Conrad Wolfram is flying over from London and Steve Strogatz is coming and Rachel Levy, all sorts of amazing mathematicians. And we're going, uh, as well as Steve Levitt and his group, and we're going to sit around and figure this out. Like, How can we give students a 21st century mathematics program um, instead of what we have right now in high schools. Uh, that is just so exciting. Um, it's so true that every field has become computational. So this is not just about math. It's uh, if you're going to be a realtor or a lawyer, or um, if you're going into the military, if you're going into social science, if you're going to be a nonprofit leader, almost every field is dealing with big complicated problems and the right the question is it's a problem finding issue what problem do we need to solve and then what data can we find about that problem how might we analyze that data what inferences can we draw from that the other thing i'm excited about data science is it's not the same as statistics because it has these really core principles around teaching it so statistics can still be taught as a set of methods but with data science, uh, we're really circulating three core principles, one of which is the kids should be using real data, not silly textbook problems, but data from their own community, which will help them realize that they can solve problems in their community and that they play a role in their community. So that's one I think is really important. The second is data science is collaborative. You don't sit on your own. Nobody sits doing a big data science question on their own. And the third one is um, it's really much more open because there isn't 
one answer to any of these data science questions. As you say, it's about uh, working out what the questions are and finding data. And there are many ways, even when you have the data, there's many ways to uh, attack those problems and work on them. So for all those reasons, I think data science could be really exciting for kids. The other thing, just um, up, is calculus is the only AP of the suite of AP classes. There's about 38 AP courses, I think. It's the only one that you really have to be advanced in your grade level to get to it. That's the way they've structured high school, that if you're not kind of ahead, you won't ever even get to calculus. And that has set up this whole system of tracking and racial inequalities and parents who pay for their kids to race to calculus. And it's a very inequitable pathway. And I see data science as something that could be wholly different that any student could take that doesn't, you know, decide who's in and who's out, but is open to all kids um, and will really go forward equitably, which is very exciting. So this is all very exciting, but it opens up um, many different questions. Uh, there's a political set of questions of how we engineer this um, how we untie the Gordian knot of secondary maths and how we change um, high school graduation requirements, both in districts and states. So maybe a, a, maybe a word on the, on the political challenge and then a word on the, the talent development challenge of how we support teachers in this change. So. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I I'm actually on a very small uh, framework committee right now, five of us who are rewriting the maths framework for California. And so maths is in the common core standard, uh, sorry, data science is in the common core standards, but it's largely ignored by uh, textbooks and teachers sort of don't know how to teach it often. So we're going to really centralize it in the new California framework and with that comes other changes, like tests will need to align and um, and resources for teachers. Well, just the the master schedule, right? We, you, as you said at the outset, we're stuck in this sandwich of algebra one, geometry, algebra two, and that's that's a that's a part of tradition, but it's also sort of ensconced in graduation requirements and how people think about college entrance requirements. So. Do we need do we need integrated math or what do we actually replace? What goes in the master schedule now? How do we? So yes, the integrated pathway would be ideal to develop that approach. Let's stop even thinking about these boundaries and teach everything together. I see that as being a harder push um, because we have schools that are very innovative and will say, "I'll teach a data science course," and they'll develop them and. Um, but I still think it might be an important one. So that's going to be a key question for these mathematicians sitting together. The other thing, of course, is colleges tend to signal that they want calculus. And uh, the other pathway I'm on at the moment is talking to senior people at Stanford. I've already spoken to the provost and the head of undergrads and the head of admissions to recognize that there are other mathematical pathways that are important. And I'm hoping that Stanford's going to make a statement about that and uh, that when they make a statement about it, that perhaps other uh, universities will also sign on to that. That's exciting. What about the talent development um, question? How, 
who teaches data science? How do we help uh, the mm -hmm. current group of mm -hmm. math teachers? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're, we're kind of working on that. I, I um, First of all, I think that maths teachers are ideally suited to teach course in data science. Um, there may be some new learning they need, but teachers are great learners and they love to learn. Um, and there's a lot of resources around that. I am myself uh, working on a new online class to help teachers learn how to teach data science, um, which I hope will come out next summer, in the summer. But yeah, I think there will be some uh, training we need. So the course in LA Unified, they developed a lovely course with the faculty from UCLA and are training teachers to teach that course. And we are looking to maybe um, take that course further out and have training packages around it. So, yeah, I, I think teachers will, most teachers will need new training for this, but um, why why don't we invest in that? That's a really important investment for the future, I think. Yeah, it is. It's exciting. It is. We're asking teachers to teach a new subject and in teaching a new way. Um, so I, I appreciate the initial efforts. It does feel like a, a big, relatively long-term change, both the political and, and uh, talent, but it's exciting beginnings. It is exciting, and I think we have we can get there. I'm I'm confident. That does seem analogous to writing across the curriculum. We in many schools we've made that critical that literacy is not just the work of the English teacher, but that everybody needs to be on board for reading with comprehension and writing with clarity. And the I think data science is a great entree. Uh, to, to integrating maths across across the curriculum. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's really quantitative literacy, if you like. Um, and it doesn't just sit in maths. I mean, the problems that students will work on in data science really go into social science and science. And, yeah. Right. You talked about community connected. That That's going to happen in science and social studies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is such uh, exciting progress, Joe. Um, how for people that want to know more, where would you send them? So, ucube.org um, is has a lot of what I've talked about, both in terms of mindset and math change. And we have a new section on Ucube that, that with a header called Data Science. And if you go there, you can find the podcast that you talked about, the Free Economics podcast, and the um, the op-ed and also some really nice resources. So we've put up some tasks. Um, one of them, we partnered with the New York Times. They produce a graph every week and ask the question, what's going on in this graph? And uh, they're really interesting data visualizations. So we've used one of those on the on our website. It's actually a data visualization that shows the most popular pop uh, records every summer. So um, I think kids will find it really interesting. And then we also link to uh, the Concord Consortium that has some beautiful free data science activities um, and their own software that's free and easy to use. They do. We just had them on the podcast last week. So we, we really appreciate their work. Yeah. So lots of resources are under that data science tab on Ucubed. But generally, um, Ucubed has pretty much everything I've talked about today, I think. Dr. Joe Buller, we so appreciate your contribution in the last 20 years, and it um, it feels like you're just oh, getting you. started on what might <laughs> be your life's most important work. I hope so. I am excited about it. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Done. We appreciate Dr. Bowler's 20-year campaign to make math education more applied, more collaborative, and quite frankly, more fun. We are encouraged by her recent advocacy for data science. Thank you, Dr. Bowler. For more on all things innovations and learning, be sure to sign up for our weekly smart update and visit our blog at gettingsmart.com for podcasts, blogs, white papers, and infographics to support your work and your learning. We'll include links to the blog and a sign up for our smart update in the show notes and on the post for this podcast. That's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in for the Getting Smart podcast. This is Jessica signing off.